what's inside our mind We forget more than we remember The answer seems so hard to find For all the distance and the journey And the search for what is Seasons changing. I keep my faith in you, my place in the sun, so true and clear. Even now, still I find you here. Let faith be my life. Will darkness survive? I need only believe to find my way back. To my place in the sun Welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was Skunk Baxter featuring Michael McDonald and My Place in the Sun, one of the highlights from his new album Speed of Heat. You'll be familiar with uh, Skunk from his work in groups like Steely Dan and Doobie Brothers, one of the greatest guitarists of his generation. So it's my pleasure to speak to Skunk about all this and much more on the Strange Brew today. So let's hear my chat with skunk thank you for agreeing to speak with me it's a it's a pleasure to speak back to you pleasure is mine sir so you've got your current album and debut album i think uh, speed of heat that's took quite a long time despite your long and storied history did the time just feel right well in the beginning i always felt that does anybody really need one more solo album from one more guitar player from one more successful band something about it just seemed a little trite to me uh, besides, between uh, producing and session work and sort of my day job, you know, doing working for the Department of Defense, I just don't uh, didn't have the time. Yeah. But I met a guy named C.J. Vanston in a recording session in Chicago, and we hit it off musically. And I thought, okay, well, maybe we should go in and when we both have the time, because C.J., very busy guy, producer, composer, 
keyboard player. So we go in and see what, what we could do and bits and pieces. And like I say, it's kind of like pennies in a jar. I mean, eventually you got to roll them up, right? Running out of jars full. So I, we started to listen to what we had. I thought, hey, we should maybe both agree. Maybe we should really concentrate on this. And uh, so I went out and got a record deal. And there you go. And it was going to be an instrumental album because, you know, I'm old school ventures stuff, you know, all that stuff. And West Montgomery and Howard Roberts. And, yeah. and then I was at a, uh, a function, uh, a charity event. And I ran into Mike McDonald again. Mike's an old friend. And he asked me what I was doing. And I said, I'm doing a solo project. Uh, and he said, well, if you'd like me to do something on it, I'd love to. I said, I think it was a nanosecond. Yep. It now is both an instrumental and a vocal album. And the same thing happened with Clint Black and Johnny Lang and uh, and Rick Livingston. So that's kind of how all that evolved. Michael McDonald is featured on um, My Place in the Sun and stunning vocal and the backing to it is so atmospheric and different approach for much of the material Michael features on, don't you think? Well, here was the deal. And it was a deal with everybody. Michael, I'd love you to do this, but here's what I'm going to ask. Number one, co-write with myself and CJ. And number two, try something that you've never done before. That's way out of your wheelhouse. Good news is, if you screw the pooch, it's my fault. <laughs> if it's really well done and successful, you'll get the credit for it. And so with each of the artists, Clint Black, same thing. Yeah. That's Clint Black, you know, or that's Johnny Lang. What? So the idea was to really give my friends the opportunity to push the envelope, open up their gates and see what the art of the possible was. And I think it's one of the best things Michael's ever done because it's, you can't describe it. You know, you can't, you can't pigeonhole it. You can't categorize it. Can't even quantify it. And you mentioned Clint, uh, renowned in, in the country um, sphere. Again, a different sound for him as well. And then the backing to that, you've got your guitar and is that CJ's organ and you've got a bit of a sort of battle going on. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. CJ's a fearsome keyboard player. Absolutely. That's bad move, isn't it? Bad move. And when Clint came into the studio, he plugged his guitar in and he played that opening riff. And I went, that's the song. Having absolutely nothing to do with any country DNA from any part of the universe. Thought, okay, this is going to be good.
also um, radically reshaped some Steely Dan classics that you featured on and My Old School and Do It Again. You did them again, but in places a bit more driving or, or harder than the originals. Well, I used to sing My Old School in Steely Dan when we toured. So I had a familiarity with the song. And I always thought the song had the potential to be a lot more energetic. And as we began to play it live, it, it got more and more and more energetic. So I thought, hey, what the heck? I'll just write an arrangement of it that to see how much, how much power we can put into this. And so did the arrangement. And uh, I wanted to get Steve Tyler to sing it. So I sent him a copy. And uh, Steve's an old friend. I said, hey, uh, what do you think? He said, well, yeah, but who's singing it? I said, well, that's me. I'm just doing a scratch vocal so you know where the vocal is. He said, well, what are you singing? I said, come on. <laughs> you know, I'm in bands with people like Linda Ronstadt, Elton John. I, I'm a guitar player. That's what I do. And he said, I think you should give it a shot. I said, are you kidding me? He said, no, man. So, okay. I took a shot. And we. I think we did a really thermonuclear version. I mean, it really rocks. And it holds up. The song definitely holds up. Do it again. But again, I'm not a, I don't want to do covers. Yeah. You know, I don't want to be a cover band. But do it again. It always fascinated me as a song. And uh, CJ and I were messing around with it one day. We thought, what happens if we turn it inside out, do it in 6 8 instead of 4 4, and do it as a kind of a sleazy, greasy shuffle? <laughs> so that's it. And it opens up some great possibilities to play. I love shuffles. I think playing over a shuffle is the ultimate. So thank you for the compliment. I appreciate it. It's very apparent from uh, the speed of here. Is this a, a collaboration with CJ, something that you'll be planning on continuing? I don't know. Uh, he's a busy guy. We're all busy. I, I don't know. But any opportunity to play with him to me is uh, is a joy.
terms of um, your first groups, was it when you went to university that things really sort of picked up and you featured in groups like Ultimate Spinach that we're familiar with? Probably around the same time I was playing bass for Tim Buckley. Right. I was in a huh, the most fun band ever in the universe, the Holy Modal Rounders. Oh, man. Two guys from the Fugs. And it was just, yeah, that was more fun than I've ever had in my life. But I grew up in Mexico City, and I was already playing in bands when I was 11 and 12. So I think Ultimate Spinach was probably, well, Tim Buckley, but probably the first band that had any kind of a national presence. What led you um, making the trip across the States to L.A. then? Well, I was playing, I was doing sessions in New York and sessions in Boston, playing at a studio a lot in a place called Intermediate Sound, up there on Newberry Street in Boston. I wasn't the house guitar player by any means, but I spent a lot of time there and a number of bands would come in and out and somebody would say, oh, you need a guitar part, Steve Skunk's, you know, next door. And a gentleman named Gary Katz was producing a band called The Bead Game, which was a Boston band. Fabulous band. John Sheldon, great guitar player. Jimmy Hodder, unbelievable drummer and singer. So... Gary had stuck his head in. I was doing a session for somebody. I wasn't, I can't even remember, Jonathan Edwards or something. And he said, will you come to New York and work on a, a project I'm doing with a woman named Linda Hoover? Okay, sure. I mean, I was commuting back and forth. So I went down there and it turns out that a couple of the songwriters that were contributing to the record were Donald Fagan and Walter Becker. So we did a few of the songs and afterwards, uh, they said, we've never quite heard anybody play guitar like that. I said, well, I've never heard anybody write music like this. So it was sort of, okay, whoever gets their nose under the tent first, let's do a band of some kind. So Walter and Donald, through Gary Katz, got a publishing deal at ABC Records in Los Angeles. And I was on my way out there anyway uh, to play uh, in a couple of country bands and to start doing some session work that I'd been asked to come out and do. So there we were. And so, okay, well, we need to form a band. Who, who knows anybody? Uh, do you know a drummer? Yeah, Jimmy Hodder from the Beat Game. And Gary went, oh, yeah, I mean, God, and a, a great singer. And do you know any lead singers? Yeah, Dave Palmer. Hmm. Played a lot with him in New York. And they said, we need another guitar player. And they suggested Denny Diaz, who was a friend of theirs, fabulous guitar player. So there you go, the band. So we started rehearsing in the office of the president of the record company, Jay Lasker. Jay Lasker and Howard Stark was the vice president. But we clean up our stuff so that when he showed up, there was no mess. Well, one day we screwed up. <laughs> and Jay comes and says, what the hell is this? And Gary said, well, there's this band that's playing these songs that you signed for a publishing deal. And Jay, the consummate record executive, lit a big cigar and said, all right, let me hear it. <laughs> and that's kind of how it happened. Listening now to uh, Camp by a Frill and obviously huge hits like uh, Reeling in the Years, it, it sounds so fully formed. It sounds like a band that had been playing together for years. Was it just sort of the chemistry between all the band members where that magic really happened? It has to be. That's the definition of a great band. And we were playing, we were starting to play clubs and we were starting to, you know, play together. And I looked, I just did an interview before I'm talking to you. Yeah. And they mentioned the Midnight Special, the performances on that. And I look at that and I go, that's a band. Mm. I mean, it's not, yeah, we're all studio ministers, but it's a band. Like Toto's a band, all studio guys, but it's a band. Yeah. There's a chemistry and a magic there. And so for the first three albums, there's no doubt about it that it has that mojo, whatever that is, that bands have. <laughs>
many places you get your chance to shine in, in that Steely Dan material, especially when it comes to Ricky Don't Lose That Number. How directing were Walter and, and Donald? Well, I think they both wanted to be guitar players. And, and Walter was not a bad player at all. I mean, but they were like obsessed <laughs> with guitar playing. And so there were times when they had some specific ideas, which is fine with me. I'm a studio guy. You know, I'm a sensitive artist. Where's the check? You know, I, I'm not trying to be facetious, but yeah, my job is to, I'm a tradesman, I'm a craftsman, tell me what you want. And there were other times where just don't know what it, okay, I'm going to take a shot at this. Like my old school was exactly that, kind of one take all the way through. And they said, well, you're gonna, you should do another one. And I went, no, nope, sorry. I'll do a couple of takes if you want, but that's it. And everybody agreed after a couple of times. Uh, sometimes it would make guitar players do 30 takes. And I'm, nah, nah, nah. You lose something, I think. If you overthink something, you miss the magic. Uh, Ricky, don't lose that number I thought out. Because I think, for the most part, 
a good guitar solo or good any solo, but a good guitar solo should be a composition in itself. Should have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Should be complete. And so the solo on Ricky, I thought out. I had some specific things that I wanted to accomplish. So you never know, both sides of the spectrum. And it was the fact that as Staley Dan, you weren't touring or playing live as much as you wanted to that led you to the Doobie Brothers. Because you were playing with the Doobie Brothers yeah. in that period anyway, weren't you? Yeah, I was in. Uh, I was playing with the Doobie Brothers, playing with Steely Dan, playing with Ronstadt, playing with Johnny Ray Rodriguez. I was out uh, playing in the house band at the Palomino. 
um, yeah, I just wanted to play. Home was, you know, the Holiday Inn or whatever. But I was touring with the Doobies because the Doobies had, Celia Dan had opened up some concert tours and they were very kind. They said, uh, would you like to sit in for one or two songs? Sure. Three or four, five or six, eight, half the show. So by that time, it looked like there was some kind of connection there. And I was out with the Doobies doing a concert at the Nebworth Festival when I spoke with the guys at Steely Dan, and they just said they don't want to tour anymore. And I thought, okay, well, touring's fun. I mean, I'm a studio rap, but I also like to play live. So I hung up the phone, and I said, well, that's kind of it for me and Steely Dan. And one of the guys at Doobie says, well, now you're in the Doobie Brothers. Okay, all right. And started in earnest. I think the first, I'd, I'd done a bunch of session work for him on previous albums, but started really earnest on um, Stampede, I think was the first album that I really got involved in. Doobie Brothers, there's some great versions that, that you did of, of some Motown tracks. Take Me In Your Arms, and you, yeah. you've got space for one of the great solos in that song. Well, thank you. And it's funny you should mention that. I, I, a lot of people are asking me about that. And when I was a kid, you know, electric guitar was still a, a new thing. Most guitar players were rhythm players because you couldn't hear them. They were just like that old Super 400 back there. You just couldn't hear anything. So I was studying out of trumpet and saxophone books because there were no guitar books, really. And so my guitar playing, I think, has deep roots as a horn player. And so the solo on Take Me In Your Arms, because it was a Motown song, I think part of my horn player DNA, I mean, I never, I played trumpet for a while, but never was really a great, a great player. But I think that that solo is a saxophone solo in my mind. But I'm glad you like it because it was fun. And it was fun to, uh, instead of approaching it like this, I thought it might be fun to approach it a little sideways, you know.
Similar to Steely Dan, Doobie Brothers, you're enjoying a string of now classic albums, Living on the Fault Line, for example, minute by minute, but you decided to leave. So it's, it's quite a, a legacy that you've left in terms of shaping the sound of those groups. Was it just that quest to continue to develop and move on and, and carry on creating? Well, I think if you're a change agent, you need to know when it's time to go. And when I brought Michael McDonald into the band, I think it was the best thing that ever happened to the band. Yeah. It gave, it's like, I'm sure there are people that only like the original Fleetwood Mac. And there are people that only like the second iteration of it. And there are hopefully people that like them both. Same thing with the Doobie Brothers. Uh, they were a fabulous band before Michael joined. And they became a fabulous band after. And I think bringing Michael into the band opened up a whole new dimension. A keyboard, having a keyboard in a band changes the way music is written and performed and also opens up a number of chordal and harmonic possibilities that don't exist if you're just playing guitar. So as Michael became uh, began to mature as a musician, as a songwriter, and as a singer, it moved the band in, an, in a direction. As a matter of fact, when we were going to do the Living on the Fault Line album, which I think I think is the best Doobie Brothers album, because you listen to it, the depth of musicianship on that record. I mean, you listen to the early Doobie Brothers, say, yeah, they're a good rocking band. Yeah, well, they're also extremely fine musicians. My God, Tyran Porter's got to be the most underrated bass player on the planet, this guy. I mean, and everybody in the band, so I got the idea, let's I'm going to book the band as a rhythm section. So I want you guys to kind of get into the Steely Dan frame of mind. Show up at 9 o'clock, downbeats at 9.30, you play it right the first time or you're fired. Nobody cares what band you're in, how famous you are, how long your hair is, what kind of boots you're wearing. That's the name of the game. And so I brought them in as a rhythm section for White Axton, Carly Simon, Leo Sayer. And everybody did phenomenally. They were, we, band was asked back, it was kind of like a miniature wrecking crew. People loved the way this band, because it was a cohesive unit as well. So there was the musicianship plus the cohesion of playing together. So by the time we got to the Living on the Fault Line album, I still listen to some of that stuff and go, wow, you know, some amazing playing. And I remember during the album, I mean, you know, again, Doobie Brothers, rock and band, rock and roll, having a great time. Keith Knutson, one of the drummers, was, we listened back to one of the tracks, and he went, I dropped a snare drum beat in bar 51. And I went, bingo, <laughs> bingo. Now you're not only doing what you do, you're in that frame of mind. So I think that laid the groundwork for the Minute by Minute album. I don't know if that album would have happened if it hadn't been for the College of Musical Knowledge and the exploration on Living on the Fault Line. Yeah. 
How did you find producing other artists? Were you someone who let a band do their own thing or did you shape things before? Because I think an early example of you producing was Nazareth, Malice in Wonderland album. Oh, yeah, what a band. Yeah. And that were and it was there was a mutual respect. And and I wasn't I didn't have a heavy hand because I I understood being in a band. Right. And there was something that you don't mess with. There are times when you go, hey, have you guys thought about trying this? And Zal was a great songwriter as well. Yeah. As well as a great guitar player. So what he brought to the band in a combination was what I think I could bring to the band in terms of musical discipline and ideas. I love that record. Holiday was one of the key tracks off that. And- what a great record. I mean, not that I did it. I'm just, What fun that was to listen to. <laughs> And they were, yeah, were great. And because of my Scottish heritage, yeah. we had a, you know, a, what a great team, you know. <laughs> <laughs> We'd have a wee swallow and then go in and play for a little while. You know, it was great. to ask finally about one other track from uh, Speed of Heat and that's your own version of the rolls and uh, the pedal steel features heavily on that. That's my baby back there. Quite emotive version of that as well. Was that a track that you'd known a long while that you thought that you could do something special with? Yeah, because some years ago 
I was on the advisory board for Guitar Player Magazine. I was writing a uh, monthly column called The Eclectic Electric, and they did a 25th anniversary celebration for the magazine up in San Francisco, and they asked a bunch of players to come up and play. And they asked me if I would play. I said, oh, absolutely. I said, well, what we'd like you to do is we're going to do a photo montage of our colleagues that have passed right. passed on. And I said, I, it'd be an honor to do that. I wasn't really sure what to do. And then I was just driving down the street in the car, and the rose came on the radio. And I listened to it, and I said, this melody is something about this. So I said, okay. I went out on stage on the 25th anniversary. I sat down and I played the Rose acapella, just pedal steel, because the, the voice of the pedal steel is so beautiful. And I was almost to the end of the first verse when Adrian Ballou came out and plugged in. And I love Adrian. I mean, what a, a great human being and a fantastic guitar player. Ooh. By the time we got to the end of the second verse, there was a bass player and a keyboard player and a drummer. And this song had sort of morphed. So I thought, one of these days, I'm going to do this song. And I thought, when I did this record, I wanted to do a tribute to my father, to my dad. And I remembered the emotions that I had when I did it the first time. And I thought, this is, what I'm, this is how I'm going to tell my dad how I feel about it. So I think it maybe has, I guess you picked up on it, it has a little something extra yeah. there. Thank you for yeah. picking up on that. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure and honour to speak to you, Skunk. Um, fantastic album. And also I'll be looking out for your autobiography in the, the next year or so, I hope. Yeah, we're working on it now. Boy, thinking back to all that stuff, sometimes it's a jarring experience, but it's good for me. Well, thank you for your hospitality. My pleasure. All right. You take care. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye.
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.